Hi, I'm Tracy Camilleri. Welcome to our second edition of podcasts in our Ghost Light series. In these dark times, our focus shifts to new beginnings. If the first step is the hardest in any new endeavor, how do you muster the courage, the energy and resolution to take it? We'll be talking to a variety of fascinating people, reflecting on how to begin. Hi, this is Tracy Camilleri, and my guest today is Semenwaj Sesha, the founder and director of a digital museum that explores the creative journeys of British people of colour. Semenwaj was awarded an OBE for services to the arts in 2018, and I know a few better people to talk with about the importance of creativity and its power to transform, challenge, and improve our understanding of the world. Welcome, Samenwa. I'd like to start off by asking, where are you in the world <laughs> on this <laughs> rainy morning? On this rainy, very British morning, I am in Folkestone, which is a small town on the Kent coast. So it's a seaside town. I have a view of hills, not the sea, but I do have the sea at the end of the road, which is glorious. <laughs> I'm actually quite close to the sea as well, being in Norfolk, but nice. uh, lovely to talk to you today. I'd like to kick off really talking about creativity and its power to transform. I mean, you've spent a lifetime immersed in the arts and, and in being creative. And it occurred to me that if you look back through history, it's striking that after some of the darkest times, you know, whether it's pandemic or war, sort of things we're living through right now, it's been the arts that afterwards have revitalized and energized society. And what is it? Semenoir about art and creativity that's so life-enhancing. Well, yes, I mean, it, it absolutely is. And I think when you talk to many artists, they will talk about creating their work. They need to do it. And that need to express their feelings, their impressions of their society, the world around them, or, or, or indeed beyond them is something that compels them to create often extraordinary mind-blowing work. Now, if we have gone through something traumatic, um, we know that some of the best work, whether it's literature or music, comes from a place of pain. And the ability to transform, indeed, any emotion into something that people can read, see, listen to, feel, where, indeed, is is something that artists do. And so at these moments of real extremes in emotion, fear, the artist's role in interpreting that and turning it into something that can then speak to us, that allows us to go, oh, that's exactly how I felt, is is more needed than ever. And I believe that because that is what an artist does at these times, they will by nature of what they do, take it and create something that allows us to reflect back, to remember, to feel, to reimagine indeed these times. So whether it be war, as you said, or a pandemic, artists and art will help us renew, re-engage, reinvigorate ourselves after this trauma, because it is a trauma. Even if you don't know somebody who has passed, even if you haven't had it yourself, we are experiencing the trauma together and it's impacting on our bodies. So art will be really important in how we emerge. 
As you were speaking, uh, I remembered the first time that I ever actually spoke to you, which was because of our shared connection with the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, that place full of fingerprints of humanity, of humanity's need to, as you say, express themselves, uh, a museum of anthropology. And it's long been one of my favorites since I was a student. And I remember being stopped in my tracks by you saying that your blood froze when you walked through the building. Can you say something about how it made you feel and why it made you feel like that? Yes. Gosh, and every time I think about it, I get the feeling again. Okay, so when you enter the Pit Rivers, you enter through the Natural History Museum, which in itself is strange because you have just sort of walked past the dinosaurs and you leave this sort of chapel of natural history, which is, you know, large and light and bright. And then you walk into what to me feels like a Victorian music hall. But it is so densely populated with artifacts, as you say, from around the world. And I had this sensation of just my whole body went cold and, and I didn't know where to look. I didn't know what to do. I was, um, with the lovely Lucy Shaw. Um, I think she, she felt that some, something was wrong. And she wanted to show me some different things within the museum, and she did. And it has extraordinary collections, which I have since been able to look at. But after a couple of things, I asked her if we could leave. And I said, I just can't just be in that space. It is too disturbing for me. And leave we did. We went to meet um, the director, <laughs> the lovely Laura Van Brokhoven. And it was, um, yes, it was just an overwhelming feeling of... <sighs> competing energies and my body literally couldn't handle it it was a it was a physical experience I simply couldn't handle it it was distressing and I had to leave and uh, can you say a little bit more about what the competing energies were now that I'd never been to the pit rivers and I didn't know much about it but now that I do know more about it and I have taken time and looked at different elements of the collections I understand it and it's I believe it's ancestor spirit but it's ancestor spirit from so many ancestors some of whom are at peace some of who are not it's almost as if you know how you feel when you walk into a church or indeed a sacred place any sacred place indeed sometimes graveyards and you have a sense of something it has a particular energy and even if you're not religious, you feel a sort of reverence for the space. It was that sense of that energy, but multiplied, significantly multiplied, and lots of them. So it was like being in 15 different religious spaces at the same time. And my body couldn't, couldn't handle that. That's what I mean about they were competing, because it was just so much... And, and interestingly, because we spoke about art and what that can do, Chris Affili has a piece of work, I want to say, the, the Upper Room, I believe. And the space was created by David Ajay, and it held Chris Affili pieces of, there were paintings of rhesus monkeys on dung balls. And that was it. So there was a, a bench down the middle, and the monkeys were either side, but it had been lit beautifully. The, the space was amazing. And when it first opened at Tate Britain, people were sitting on the bench and crying 
And it was that sense that you felt that you'd come into a place of worship, that this was an art gallery and you were looking at painted monkeys. <laughs> but there was something about the space that was really moving people. And so we know that things can move us to tears that we don't fully understand. And I suppose if you transpose that into a museum setting, it was something of that that I was getting at the Pit Rivers. Oh, that's a beautiful description. And that power to move. I mean, I'd like to talk about your museum, um, the Museum of Colour. And I must say, from my perspective, you know, in these lockdown times, it's a joy to have a, a digital museum like yours to wander around. And I was struck looking at it just to prepare for our conversation now. There's a, there's a lovely contribution by, by Jay Bunnard, a poetic contribution. I went in at night, took the museum from its glass case, opened its toy roof. And it really struck me that that's in a way what you've done in, in creating this museum. And can you just give us an example of a contribution to, to the museum that you particularly love or particularly proud of? Oh, that's tough. There are so many. But I am going to go with, with, I'm going to follow your cue, um, and go to the response gallery because it's possibly less obvious than the fuller exhibition with the portraits where people are actually talking about what the artifacts mean to them. And there's only one poem I can pick and it is the one by Kai Miller. And there's amazing work, but this one in particular for me, spoke to it it spoke to the way that writers can take an inanimate object and make it so relevant can i share a little bit of it yes do so it was a lacewood whip that was the artifact that kai miller chose to write about you have played jab molasses the haunt of history chipping through the streets of port of spain to learn to play that mass is to learn the weight of a whip and how to hold it, how to slice the air above your head in a curling hiss, and how to accept on your own skin the occasional lash. It is to know the precise use of aloe vera, we call it Cinco Bible. It is to know the scripture of plants, how to balm the bruised body each night. The memory of your whipped body is not where you wanted this thought to end, but what else is there at the end of whips, if not bodies? You wanted to consider a whip without its context, to hear the news that 21 MPs have been robbed of their whips, which is to say stripped of their power. You want to hear this without flinching. You want to see no connection, the long hiss above your hair that curls between the present and the past like something charged, a memory you have no right to. You want only to consider the lacewood whip without the haunt of history. Wow, that is powerful. Really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Hi, Mr. Menoir. I, I work a lot with people who don't think of themselves in the way you clearly think about yourself. You know, they don't feel that they're, and they are not working in the creative industries. And they, you know, don't have the courage, perhaps, to take some of the creative steps that uh, we've been talking about in the last few minutes. I was struck in another part of the museum, one of the contributors, the writer Bernadine Evaristo, she says, taking creative risks can result in untold creative riches. Never play it safe. And one of the things, one of the questions I've asked myself is, how do you help people who may not think of themselves as being creative to have the courage not to play it safe, to take those sorts of risks? And do you have any thoughts about that? So 
This one isn't easy because we all have a different idea possibly of what creativity means to us. But in terms of creative risk, we all have an imagination and, and we use it in, in various ways. And I think there is something about daring to follow your imagination and possibly taking a different route. Now, whether that is a different route on your way to work in times where we do travel to work again, or whether that is looking at maybe a different method to do something that you always do, doing it a different way, changing the order, changing the color, changing the people who you normally speak to. We often have what somebody referred to recently as an unofficial board of advisors. And these are people we trust and we always reach to them if we have a problem that we want to solve. What if we change our unofficial board of advisors and choose different people? What if we choose people for that board from completely different areas? And I think these are the little ways that we can, in our own lives, whatever it is that we do, whether it's accounting, engineering, or whatever it is we're doing, we can bring difference to play in what we do. And when Bernadine talks about taking creative risks, I am taking a risk in trying to interpret her, but I think it is that sense of trying the untried something that is not safe, is not regular, but some part of you tells you that there might be gold at the end of that rainbow if you have a go. And if it isn't, you can go back to the way that you did it before. Um, you can go back to your unofficial advisory board, but that <laughs> potentially you might hear things that allow you to go in different directions, do things differently, explore or discover something new if you try something different. Well, on the theme of exploration and discovery, I'm also, I'd like to turn to another one of your projects, which really interests me, which is your respect due project, where you make a commitment to acknowledging and celebrating society's elders. I feel particularly at, at, at this time when so many older people have tragically died, that there's been a a real silence around those people. They've ended up as, as numbers and there hasn't been an, an honoring. And maybe, maybe this is just a British thing. I don't know. But in my mind, there's been a sort of central silence around those people. So I really like the idea of your project. And I mean, why do you feel that we do need to turn to the wisdom of elders and the stories of their lives um, at this moment and at any moment, actually? So. Interestingly, I haven't had a lot of elders in my own life. I lost most of my grandparents. I had one grandfather who was in Montserrat. And so there's a part of me that sort of always craved it in a sense. But at this time, um, what you say is true in terms of these, these tragedies, these losses being numbers at the end or the beginning indeed of a news broadcast and, or an article. And it struck me that that's definitely not okay. These, these are people that mean something to somebody, often many people. And how could, and at this time, I was looking at what we could do with the museum with very few resources and the concept that we have for how we build our exhibitions involves being face to face. There's the photographer, there's the sitter, there is, you know, the film crew is all, you know, so 
I was looking at how to adapt the concept and how to make it remote. But at the same time, I wanted it to be personal. And there is something about having an opportunity to pay respect to somebody who has influenced your life. And could we give that opportunity to others and therefore pay respect to people? The way that we are delivering the museum, we're doing it art form by art form. We're getting ready to do poetry and hopefully after that we will do dance. But at this time when people are dying at a different rate and in different ways and where people of African and Asian descent seem to be even more at risk of dying once contracting COVID, it felt desperately important to make that connection. So we invited people to nominate somebody who has had an influence in their career, potentially who may not be very well known. And we have commissioned an artist to create a portrait of that person. And they're doing it remotely from photographs and conversations. And the response to it has been fantastic. Um, we're really excited. We'll be launching it in February. Everybody will be able to see them. They aren't, it's not a large exhibition, but it's been really special. And, um, there are six portraits and we're hoping to do it in two more iterations where we will invite journalists to nominate a creative and we will invite existing heritage organizations to also nominate a creative and have different artists creating the portraits. But hearing what they have to say about what their sector was like when they started out, the changes they've witnessed, the highs and lows of their careers, oh, it has been like food. <laughs> I love to hear the lift in your voice when you're describing it. And, and I think, again, that's something that's really striking about your way of working. I mean, we've even having quite a somber conversation, I suppose. And yet you manage to bring playfulness into almost everything that you do. And it doesn't seem at odds, even when you're dealing with really serious subjects. How does playfulness help? Oh, playfulness. Oh, it's everything. Um, and interestingly, I think of myself as quite a somber person. I don't really understand small talk. I'm terrible at it. I want to talk about big world issues with people I've just met and it's wholly inappropriate. But I do like joy, which to me is really different from happiness because for me, happiness is linked to certain circumstances, whereas joy is something you locate within yourself and you just go with it. And it can come from awful things. An example of the biggest laugh I had recently was I suffer with fibromyalgia and I was having a ridiculous attack and um, my body just didn't want to play ball and I needed to clean my kitchen. And I was really frustrated at my inability to hold the materials that I need, you know, hold the broom or hold the mop or hold anything. So I had, um, as many of us do at the moment, those antibacterial wipes and I was struggling <laughs> to even hold those. Dropped a couple on the floor and I went, oh, hold on a minute. And I put my feet on the antibacterial wipes and cleaned my floor with them. And I was, I couldn't wait to share this invention. It's like, I don't need brooms and mops. I can put antibacterial wipes on the floor and use my feet to clean. And honestly, I told my friend who thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever. And we just laughed at the ridiculousness of it. And, and it came from, you know, and I think there's something about being able to laugh at the terrible things 
Yes, that 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 discovery <laughs> came out of pain. But it was I was so pleased with myself. It was the silliest thing, but it made me so happy. And I think it's important and sharing that with somebody so they could also laugh. My friend has rheumatoid arthritis, so she understood what it's like to be frustrated by your body and not being able to do what you want to do. And yeah, it was it was wonderful. But likewise, sharing that with colleagues or being able to laugh at things, it brings you together. You share something. And we had a recent meeting. There's only four of us working on Respect You. And it was a design meeting. And one person hadn't come onto the Zoom call. And when they came on, we were in the middle of laughing about something. And they felt so outside. They were like, I want to know what you're <laughs> laughing about. And there's something about wanting to be in on that joy. And you share it. And it's a wonderful place to work from. It reminds you that you're all in something it's yeah it's a point of sharing whether you're the butt of the joke or whether you're the giver of the joke or indeed it's just something that um that you share with people that makes others smile yeah i think it's important we all we all need as much joy as we can get and as much laughter at the moment i think i'm conscious of time though simen one i want to ask you one last question your website is called Blade of Grass, and you name it deliberately in celebration of the way a sort of blade of grass can grow up even between a sort of in concrete slabs. And, you know, I'm keen to celebrate some green shoots at the start of this difficult year. Can I ask you, what currently brings you, you hope and optimism? And what, what are your blades of grass at the moment? Oh, okay. So big question. Let me see if I can do that with a small answer. So one of the most extraordinary things that has happened because of this pandemic, and I say because of it, is the speed with which these vaccines have been created. And the scientific community has absolutely raised the bar and and has done something amazing with in, in a rapid way. Now, if you take something like this virus that has swept the world and you are able to respond to it with this sort of speed, this tells us what we're capable of. And if in this time we are able to look at the big things that are currently challenging us as societies, plural, and we look at the environment, we look at inequality, we look at the way that prejudices create structural inequalities. If we take example from the scientists, we can maybe understand that we can do things faster than we think. We can do things when we grapple with them, when we understand how they are crippling our abilities to flourish as societies, that maybe we don't have to take three, four years to do this. Maybe we can do it in six to 12 months. Maybe there are things that we can do that we previously felt it was going to take a really long time to do. But now that we understand, we can harness our determination, our own vision, our imagination. That vaccine, those, those vaccine efforts have been amazingly international. And so that if we work together, then it's possible that we can make change maybe faster than we think we can. And maybe it's more about will than it is about ability. And if we have the will, we can change much more than we think we can. That's a green shoot for me. That's a wonderfully optimistic place to end. Thank you so much. This has been a, a huge pleasure of a conversation, a joyful conversation. And perhaps as my final question to you, is there a particular piece of music that you put on when you're 
cleaning your kitchen floor <laughs> with your bacterial <laughs> wipes <laughs> that brings you joy because uh, I'll put the link at the bottom of this podcast if there is okay there is a song my brother and I have a ritual where we we share music at the end of the year so our music of the year and we share playlists with each other and we do it every year and his are always extraordinary much better than mine and in his last he shared a song called Lamp now I'm going to get the artist's name incorrect it's Gui Gui Bubes and it is joyful it is i put it on i want to dance i want to run it lifts my spirits and yeah it is a beautiful song it's called lamp l-a-m-p lamp i will put the link to that thank you so much this has been a huge pleasure thanks tracy you've been listening to ghost lights a podcast by thompson harrison Thompson Harrison is a leadership and organization development consulting business where we bring experience, expertise, and a uniquely creative approach to offer highly specialized leadership and organization development consultancy. Thompson Harrison is skilled at designing successful ways for leaders to embrace new ideas and remain dynamic. We work with senior leaders and their teams to transform their organizations in response to a fluid context and a changing set of stakeholder expectations. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.